Okay, our scripture reading today is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Uh, If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 896. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I will have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of God. Thanks, Greg. Would you pray with me just briefly? Lord, thank you for our friends, Brian and Cassie, who have given their lives uh, for the sake of your gospel. I pray that you would, you would grant them the funds necessary to go and preach this gospel to people who need it desperately to lead this camp. I pray that you would move in us to be generous to fund Uh, the mission locally and globally alike. I pray that you would bear much fruit through their service in Spain this summer and that you would surprise them with conversions, with people walking out of the darkness and into the light. And now as we open your living word, Spirit of God, would you help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Not too long ago, a friend gave me a ticket that granted me exclusive backstage access to a popular concert. I got to meet the band and chat with them a little bit before the concert. And the only hope I had for getting access into that little room was this little piece of paper. No way was I making it past security and back through the maze uh, backstage without that little piece of paper. It granted me full, exclusive access, and only a very few people had access to what I had access to. John 10 this morning is your ticket. It's your exclusive access. This is the ticket that gets you in. With it, you're granted full, exclusive access, and without it, no way, no how are you getting in. We're getting into what, you might ask. Well, that's what we're going to find out. We live 
in a pluralistic society. We probably all are familiar with this. All dogs go to heaven, right? All roads lead to God. All faiths are viable. You do you, I'll do me. You believe your truth, I'll believe my truth. What's good for you may not be good for me, and that's okay. If your truth gets you through the day, that's great for you. Well, our text today stands as a major obstacle to that way of thinking. It stands in the path just like Gandalf did and says, you shall not pass. No getting past this. Because for as good as those ideas sound and as loving as they might feel, they're all false. And false hope is no hope. Christian friends, lest you think this text is just about the day of your salvation, can I encourage you not to tune out? God has something for you, for us today, something intimate, something exclusive. He may want you to enjoy a reset this morning, and he definitely wants you to exult in the many benefits that he has for you. So stay tuned. Three points this morning centering on Jesus' actions here in the first half of chapter 10. And before we even get to chapter 10, we need to kind of reset where we're at in the Gospel of John. We need to catch up because it's been a while since we've been there. What's been happening so far? To help you a little bit with the context of chapter 10, everything that happens here happens in the same time, the same day, in the same place as everything that happened in chapter 9. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's probably just outside the temple because they just kicked him out and they were threatening to stone him inside the temple. It's the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember this, they sometimes called it the Feast of Booths, and people would come in from outside of the city and set up these temporary tents. They called them booths or small tabernacles, and they would live in them for the week for this festival. And so you can imagine the sights and sounds and smells as people are disassembling their tents, packing up, and prepping to go home. It's in this kind of setting that Jesus is speaking these words. So standing outside the temple there at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus heals this guy who was born blind. Well, you can imagine the stir around town after something this crazy happened. The man who used to stumble to his spot at the gate to sit and beg is now walking around without stumbling, able to care for himself and enjoy the sights around him for the first time ever. It's a wonderful day for that man. But there was a whole lot of debate among the people as to whether or not this was actually uh, the case. Some were like, man, the guy's been healed. Praise God. Others were like, nah, fake news. That just looks like the guy who was born blind that used to sit there at the temple. So the townsfolk brought the man to the Pharisees to try to figure out what was really happening. And the Pharisees, they thought it was fake news too. Are you really the man that was born blind? They asked him. Yeah, he said, but they didn't believe him. They didn't believe the people in town either. So the Pharisees go to his parents and they're like, hey, is this your son? Yes, it is. Was he born blind? Yes, he was. Well, how did he start seeing? Um, we don't know. We're not going to answer that. He's old enough to answer the question, they say. Why don't you ask him? They were afraid of getting kicked out of the temple, which is why they kicked the can down the road to their poor son. Um, so they go back to this man a second time. Dude, tell us the truth. There is no way this man healed you. He, Jesus, he's a sinner. And by ascribing Jesus the title sinner, they were rejecting the notion that he was God. 
So the formerly blind man answers, and he says, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. The one thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. So the Jewish leaders, they scoff at this. They take offense. We know God better than you. God doesn't work this way. And we know that Jesus isn't God. We know ain't no one ever been healed of blindness before. God spoke to Moses, not to Jesus. So we don't know where this man came from, but he certainly didn't come from God. And he most certainly isn't God himself. To which the man answers in verse 30, if you if you're open to John chapter 9, he says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he's the one who opened my eyes. Basically, you dummies, this man made my blind eyes see. Why can't you see who he actually is? Why can't you see that you're the blind ones? These were major fighting words. They even went so far as to kick him out of the fellowship of the temple. Because they'd made this rule that whoever confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, they would kick them out of the synagogue. So he's on his way out. And after he's left the temple, Jesus tracks him down to do a little bit of follow-up discipleship. And he confirms that this man has, in fact, believed in who Jesus truly is. He was healed by Jesus. He was saved by Jesus. And then he worshipped Jesus. This man might have been kicked out of the Jewish fold, but Jesus was bringing him into his own fold. So here's the very subtle but intentional ironic twist at the end of chapter 9. And if you can go all the way back in your mind to the last time Brandon preached, that's the last text that was preached in this series. The man, here's the ironic twist, the man who has never seen a thing in his life has the eyes of his heart opened to see the true identity of Jesus. Meanwhile, this, in contrast with those who fought the eyes of their hearts, had always, been, uh, had always seen, but they clearly weren't seeing. It was their eyes that had been blind since birth, and they remained stubbornly blind, refusing to see that Jesus was God come in the flesh. I mean, just think about the evidence that they had to scorn in order to persist in their unbelief. It's pretty substantial. The man, the people, the parents, and yet they persisted in their stubborn blindness, refusing to acknowledge who Jesus was, arrogantly disregarding the truth right in front of them. And so despite all this, Jesus mercifully transitions the conversation, and that's where we're sliding in to chapter 10 this morning, where Jesus once again confronts their stubborn blindness by way of a new challenging illustration. It's in the first six verses of chapter 10. So number one this morning, we're going to see that Jesus issues a troubling indictment on stubborn blindness. Jesus issues a troubling indictment on stubborn blindness. So I think in order for us to understand adequately the challenging illustration that Jesus gives here, you have to understand something about ancient Middle Eastern sheep keeping. There were two different approaches to this. First, if the owners of the livestock lived out in the country, the sheepfold was like this low-walled rock, rock wall corral uh, that had a narrow opening in the front that the sheep would go in and go out. But if the sheepfold was in town, which you can imagine is where Jesus was delivering this little speech, 
the sheepfold was typically a little bit larger because it was a community corral where different flocks from different owners were all fenced in together into the same flock. So I think what Jesus has in mind here, what Greg just read for us, is a community corral, the one that's in town with different flocks all a part of the same sheepfold. And because this was a community corral, the shepherds who used the space would split a fee to pay for the gatekeeper. Look at there at verse 2. Jesus says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. And so what Jesus is saying is that if you aren't a shepherd, you aren't getting through the door because the gatekeeper won't allow it. That's why they pay him money, to keep everyone out except for the shepherds. It was his job to only allow the shepherds through the gate. So right off the bat here, Jesus is reminding these uh, Jewish leaders that there's only one legit and honorable way into the sheepfold. It's by the door. Of course, you could hop the fence like in verse 1 there, risking penalty in prison, but the one who comes through the door in verse 2 is the shepherd of the sheep. He doesn't have to sneak in. They're his sheep. He owns them. Now look there at verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls the sheep by name. The sheep hear his voice. Now, for as dumb as sheep may be, they got a very keen sense of hearing from God when he made their species. It's like extra developed or something. And so Jesus says that this shepherd goes into the fold and calls for his sheep. And keep in mind, there's sheep from different shepherds and different flocks in this fold. And so his sheep hear his voice, and they come. And by implication, the others stay. So I pulled up a video on YouTube this past week, and I want to show it to you. I'm not going liberal or going rogue. I just think that uh, under—I'm un, just going to sit down now and show a YouTube sermon, and we'll be, we'll be good. Um, I think for city people like us— uh, even suburb people like us. It's hard to get a grasp of what's going on here without actually seeing it. It's so foreign to our day-to-day experience. But the way that sheep hear their master is truly astounding. It's a phenomenon. And I just think it'll help us visualize the point that Jesus is making in these verses. Uh, and so, just as a heads up while you're watching, keep a close eye on the heads of the sheep in the background as they hear the different people's voices and watch when their heads pop up, when, when their shepherd actually starts to, to call for them. So you're going to have to turn on the volume. I don't know if you've got the volume up for this, but... Um, and then can you... I didn't... This is going to be great for TV and radio. Um, can you just stop it around, like, 40, the 48-second mark for us? That'd be, that'd be great. Oh, my God. 
How many of you guys knew that about sheep? You seen that before? That kind of thing? It's pretty cool, huh? They have an extra developed sense of hearing. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice because they know his voice. So Jesus, in Jesus' context, everybody would have understood this concept. But I want us to notice a few things about the shepherd here and then the sheep. First, the shepherd. Look at verse 3. The shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name. He cares for these sheep in a personal way. He knows them. Further in verse 3, he doesn't just know them. He doesn't just keep track of them. He leads them and cares for them, walking out in front of the flock to ensure that predators can't access them and to ensure that the sheep don't walk off a cliff because sheep are dumb. That's like sheep's biggest MO, isn't it? That they're dumb. Poor guys. But take a look at how the text uh, goes on to describe sheep. Actually, one more about the shepherd I want us to see. In verse 4, Look, he numbers his sheep. Verse 4 says, when he has brought all of them out. He numbers his sheep. When he has brought all of them out, he knows who are his and how many are his. He doesn't lose track of any of his sheep. It's not just a mass or a herd to him. They're all individuals that he cares for by name. Look how the sheep are described, though. Verse 3, all the sheep he calls to follow him. Because they hear his voice and they recognize it. Sheep follow their shepherd. End of verse 4. The shepherd doesn't just know them, like from a distance, because the sheep know him too. They're familiar with him and his voice because he's been with them. They know his voice. And just a hint, them knowing his voice, inside scoop here, I think this is representative of the primary indictment that Jesus is bringing here to these Pharisees who had uh, just demonstrated their blindness. But more on that in a moment. This is a pretty stunning charge that Jesus is bringing in these first six verses. Now, maybe it's not clear to you what exactly Jesus is saying. What, like, what is so offensive? If, if that's you, you're in good company. The religious elite didn't have a clue either. You can see it there in verse 6. It says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. But then look, skip down to the end of the text. Look what happens just a few short moments later. They call Jesus insane and demon-possessed. So, so what happens between verse 1 and 19 to 21 where, where they're confused and then just angry? Jesus is saying something inflammatory here, whether or not we understand it quite yet. So what's so troubling about this challenging illustration? Let's move on and see. Number two today, Jesus promotes exclusive access to abundant life. Jesus promotes exclusive access to abundant life. First, he issued a troubling indictment, and now he's promoting exclusive access to something. Look, I think if the Pharisees had worked a little bit at it, they probably would have been able to pick up what Jesus was laying down. But as it stands in the text, they're confused. So graciously, in these next few verses, Jesus begins to expand the context in the imagery of the puzzling picture that he just painted. And he brings some clarity and substance to what he hinted at in the first six verses. So verse 7 on begins to expand what he's already said. Jesus starts there in verse 7 with the fourth of his seven I am statements. These are legendary in the Gospel of John. We won't go deep on them right now. But Jesus has seven main statements in the Gospel of John. They're called the I am statements. 
Uh, and if you look carefully, not five verses later, after verse seven, he's pumping out another one of his I am statements. Jesus says, I am the door in verse seven. And then he says, I am the good shepherd in verse 11. But isn't Jesus like mixing his metaphors here a little bit? How can he simultaneously be the door and be the shepherd? Well, I think we should avoid thinking of this as a strict allegory where each thing has direct correlation to people or objects. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is using all of this imagery to highlight certain aspects about himself. Namely, that he's both the door into the sheepfold and the shepherd of the sheep that are in the sheepfold. So one scholar that I read on this topic relayed the following story to me about a friend, not to me in a book, uh, to us in a book, um, about an experience that he had when he was in an Arabic country. He says, he was traveling one day in an Arabic country and came across a shepherd and his sheep in a sheepfold. But what startled this scholar the most was the lack of a door on the sheepfold. There was a large enclosure with an opening and no way to cinch the space up tight. So the scholar asked that the sheep stay safe at night. And obviously the shepherd's response was, of course, but how? There's no door. The shepherd responded, I am the door. And this was not a Christian shepherd. He had no experience with Christianity at all. He was just explaining how shepherding, sheepkeeping works there. The shepherd responds, I am the door. What do you mean by the door? The scholar asked. Well, the shepherd responded, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in the open space. No sheep ever goes out but across my body. No wolf ever comes in but across my body. I am the door. So this short story, I think, encapsulates what Jesus means here by being both the door and the shepherd. Jesus was saying, I am the door to the sheep. In order to get in, you got to go through me. Just like backstage at the concert, there's no getting in without the ticket. You got to go through Jesus. Jesus is claiming to grant exclusive access to something here. What is it? Look at verse 9 there. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This text is about the gospel. It is about salvation. And so the Jewish leaders, they hear this. They know what he's saying now. And they call him insane and a demon and demon possessed because it finally dawned on them what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus, Jesus' opening illustration was indicting because he's the shepherd and they can't hear him. He's the shepherd and they can't hear him, hinting at the fact that they, the most religious of all, were not in God's sheepfold. Jesus was saying that those who held David in such high esteem, these people, they love David. They held him in high esteem. Jesus was saying, you can no longer claim Psalm 23 for yourself. They couldn't say, the Lord is my shepherd because they hadn't come in through the door. In chapter 9, they can't see that they're the blind ones. In chapter 10, they can't hear that they're the deaf ones. In this trinity is the insanity of Jesus' exclusivity. There are probably some in here today who have not yet believed. 
believe that Jesus is the sole access point into God's family. He is your, my only ticket. There's one way, and it is through him. No man gets to God except through Jesus. Friend, if that's you today, can I implore you? Can I beg you? Believe. That's all that's required. Believe. Your sin can be atoned for. Your access to God's family can be granted, free of charge to you, because the blood price has been paid by another. Would you believe this today? No other hope, no other access point, no other ticket. And so again, it's at this point when Jesus' more obscure illustration starts to click into focus here in chapter 10. Jesus was telling these Pharisees that they were not in God's flock. Jesus was telling them that if they wanted in, they had to go through him. No other way. And note here that Jesus does not claim to be a door. He didn't say that he was the best prize behind the best door in some kind of cosmic game of the price is right. He didn't claim to be the best option among many doors. He claimed to be the door. I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. That's why we sacrifice time, money, and energy to send people like Brian across the globe because we believe this. We believe this is people's only hope. And this is the offense of the gospel, whether you live here or on the other side of the globe. It's offensive. This is the offense of the message that we embrace. It's not at all popular to say that there is only one access point to God. All faiths do not lead to God or to heaven. And to claim that, while it may initially feel more loving, is actually not loving in the least. It's a damning message. Just like it wouldn't be loving for a doctor to wimp out on sharing a challenging diagnosis with you, it is unloving for us to withhold the frightening spiritual diagnosis for those around us. Well, their response is up to them and to God, the people we share this with, but we shouldn't shy away from it. If you'd embraced a myth or something made up, make-believe, then yeah, you should feel bashful about claiming that. Like if you're going around telling the world that Elsa's going to save us from the next ice age, you should feel a little bit bashful about that. It's not true. But you haven't embraced the myth, friends. You have embraced the truth. You have believed in the historical Jesus whose Father has preserved his very words in this book for our direction, for our comfort, and for our salvation. You've come into the kingdom of God if you are in Christ. You are sons and daughters of a good and gracious king. You're a sheep in his pasture, and you get the abundant life only offered by Jesus. This is the wonder of the gospel for us as Christians. Jesus being the door and the shepherd means this. Listen, this is, this is great. Anyone who's coming after Jesus' sheep has to get through Jesus. Anyone who's coming after us has to get through him. This speaks of protection, of safety, of love. For all of you this morning who are in Christ, you are in the Father's hand and ain't no one gonna pluck you out of it because there's no one stronger 
no one wittier, no one savvier, no one wiser than your shepherd. No one's going to outmaneuver him to get to you. You're safe. I mean, this morning you might be barely hanging on, just barely, by a thread. And I can empathize. I've been there. But there is no barely about Jesus' hanging on to you. He's your safe place. He's your leader. He's your shepherd. And before it's all said and done, he will lead you beside still waters and in green pastures. Even if you have to go through the valley of the shadow of death to get there, he's going to get you there. Man, we get a good, good gig with a good, good shepherd for some bad, bad people. So Jesus claims to be the door and the shepherd. But what's on the other side of the door? Where does the shepherd lead? Verse 10, abundant life. What is abundant life? Is it a beamer? Is it a six-figure salary? Is it a six-pack and a tan? Is it the beautiful house with the picket fence? Is it prestige? Is it a large social media following? What is on the other side of the door? According to verse 10, it's abundant life. Jesus wants you as an individual to experience abundant life. Life turned up to the max. Does saying yes to Jesus often mean saying no to some other things that the world offers you? Yes, it does. And that's hard and painful sometimes. But you're never just saying no to sin. You're saying yes to abundant life, to something better. You've got to read it and believe it, friends. So I wonder this morning, does abundant life, does that describe you? Abundant life. I mean, you probably don't have everything materially speaking that you want. But is your life still maxed with abundance. Jesus said, I came to give you abundant life. Not a bummer of a life, but that's how we think and operate sometimes, isn't it? That's the message the world likes to like tell us and incept into our brains. But Jesus hasn't come to give us a bummer life. Jesus hasn't come to hamstring us from getting what we really want. Listen, Christian, let's not forget how amazing we have it. By God's sovereign grace, we have somehow wandered into the sheepfold of God. With the God-man as our shepherd who has saved us and will keep us all the way into the end. The glitz and the glam of the tabloid life. The glamour and appeal of celebrities and of the rich. It's all going to turn out to be hamburger helper in contrast with the steak and lobster your shepherd offers you in his pastures. The eating is good. So stop believing the lie of the world. Preach to myself. They don't have anything that you need. Jesus offers abundant life, and he's the only access point to it. A rich life filled with satisfaction and contentment in the midst of hardship and frustration. That's something the world can't boast. Only we get that because of Jesus. You know, if sheep want to say, stay safe, if they want to stay watered and fed, they have to stay near the shepherd in close proximity. So your maxed out life 
is only possible if you stay near the shepherd who provides it. If you want to be a content sheep, learn to say no to the robber who's trying to steal your joy. The thief, Satan and his minions, they want to seek you out to steal you, to kill you, to destroy you. Verse 12, if you want to remain content with your shepherd, you've got to learn to say no to the competing voices. Flip back up to verse 5 there. These sheep, it says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him because they know that the stranger doesn't ultimately have their best interest at heart. You've got to believe that. These strangers, they don't have your best interest at heart, not like Jesus does. But the good shepherd does. If you want to be a joyful sheep in the flock of the good shepherd, learn to listen to his voice. Learn to follow his lead. Learn to flee from anything and anyone that would want to steal you away from the proximity of your good shepherd. Listen. Follow. Flee. That's the resume of a good sheep. Listen. Follow. Flee. So how do you listen to his voice? How do we do it? There's a couple ways. By rejecting the temptation to lean on Sundays as your only source of food. You can't hang around the shepherd. I'm not the shepherd in this instance. Jesus. You can't hang around Jesus for an hour and a half on Sundays and expect to remain full and content for the rest of your week. Your stomach won't be full for long. I hope you're taking time to consistently be in proximity with your shepherd, to allow him to lead you into some places for your souls to be fed. In the word, on your knees, in your earbuds, come close to your shepherd and enjoy the abundant life. Listen, follow, flee. Third this morning, Jesus lays claim to an ancient title by laying down his life. Jesus lays claim to an ancient title by laying down his life. No discussion of John 10 would be complete without a brief survey of Ezekiel 34. I think that Ezekiel 34 is the backdrop that John 10 is painted on. It's the backdrop that John 10 is painted on. You see, this sheep-shepherd imagery would have been very familiar to Jesus' audience. As Jesus is speaking in there, here, their minds would have likely flooded right back to Ezekiel 34. They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands. And so Jesus is subtly making a startling claim here. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of an ancient promise. So on screen, I have a, a section of Ezekiel 34 uh, that I'm going to read for us here. You can follow along. You don't have to read out loud, though. It's this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And by shepherds here, you can think of just Israel's religious leaders, not the actual people with the sheep. Um, it's like an allegory or a metaphor. Um, Son of man, Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not slaughtered, the sick you have strengthened. Hopefully, yeah, it's strengthened, not slaughtered. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. 
So, man, this is not a pretty picture. God is calling out the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, and saying that they've defrauded his people, his beloved. And God is furious with these guys. Down in verse 10, God says, Behold, I'm against the shepherds. You do not want to be the people that God is against. I'm against them, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. So not only is God interested in putting a stop to this nonsense from Israel's human leaders, he himself is going to go fill in the gap that they've left with their own selfish leadership. Look again at the text. Uh, This is a couple verses later in verse 11. Behold, I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out, and I will rescue them, and I will bring them out of the out from the peoples, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them with good pasture, and I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, and I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. So here we have God saying that He's going to do something to fix this. He says, I will, I will, I will. And then look how chapter 34 closes. And I will set over them one shepherd. So if, you, if you're looking up here at Ezekiel 34, glance down at your Bible at John 10 for a second. Verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Back up here to Ezekiel 34. God says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, you've got to know this about Ezekiel 34. David, by this time, is long gone. He's been dead for a long time. So this isn't a prophecy about David himself. It's a prophecy about someone in David's family. It's a prophecy about his distant relative in the future. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And so you see, all of the stuff going on in John 10 is Jesus' not-so-subtle claim to deity, to being God. In Ezekiel 34, God makes plans to come down to rescue his sheep. In John 10, it's Jesus who comes down to rescue the sheep. Jesus is the long-promised shepherd king. Jesus is making a not-so-subtle claim to an ancient title. He's claiming to be the Messiah of the world. I think he's claiming to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 here. In Ezekiel 34, we hear God saying, I will, I will, I will. And then here in John 10, we see Jesus saying that it's me. I am, I am, I am. And so how specifically did Jesus come and care for his sheep and lead them into green pastures? How did he fulfill this Old Testament prophecy? He did it by verse 11, 15, 17, and 18, by laying down his life for his sheep. Jesus laid in front of the door and took care for his sheep. He laid in front of the door and took on the wolf and the thief. He took on sin, Satan, and death. He absorbed all of these things so that they could not break into the sheepfold and lay claim on you and me and the millions of other sheep that he shed his blood for. So that's what Jesus is saying here in John 10. I'm going to lay down my life to kill the threat 
once and for all. Well, how does this work? By him laying down his life on the cross. Now, if you're here today and maybe you're a little unfamiliar with the Christian faith, here's how this works. Jesus lives in perfect obedience to God's will, blameless, spotless, tempted in every way that we have been tempted and yet without sin. Jesus lives this perfect life and then dies on the cross. Get this, he dies on the cross for sins he didn't commit. So when he dies, he's absorbing all of God's wrath for sin. Not his, mine, and yours. All of your sin. Anger at a child this morning as you're way, on your way out the door. Pornography addiction. A less than honest representation on your timesheet or your tax return. Distrustful worry. Whatever your sinful tendency. All of that sin, past, present, future, is fully absorbed by the Christ so that the Christian now is seen by God through the lenses of the blood of the shepherd king. He sees us as spotless and blameless in his sight because of Jesus. So how do you gain access into the fold? How can you lay claim to the abundant life that Jesus offers simply by faith in this good news? So having seen all of these individual truths this morning about Jesus, we can kind of put all of these puzzle pieces together for our one big idea. How do all these pieces fit together? What image do they convey once you put them together? I think it's this. Jesus is how you get in. He's the door. Jesus is how you stay safe. He's your shepherd. And Jesus is how you stay fed. He leads you to bread and water. Jesus is how you get in, stay safe, and stay fed. Jesus is how you get in, stay faith, stay safe, and stay fed. Some of us have been neglecting proximity to our shepherd, haven't we? We've wandered far. But you need to be close to Jesus to enjoy the safety and provision only he can offer. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and he is talking about provision and care and guidance, he is saying, when it comes to your forever, you're secure in me. You're safe. I will vanquish. I will break the teeth out of the mouth of the wolf. I will destroy the thieves and robbers who threaten to steal you from me. I got you, Jesus is saying. You're mine, and I will handle this once and for all by laying down my life. Jesus isn't promising to dispel your every darkness and your every day, but he is promising to walk through it with you, to lead you through it, to feed you through it, to protect you in it. This text is not a promise that you won't have difficulty, but rather that eternally speaking, you're secure in the good shepherd. So Jesus is how you get in. He's how you stay safe and how you stay fed. Stay close to Jesus. You pray with me. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Help us follow you no matter where you lead so that we can stay safe and stay fed and have our thirsts quenched. We need you, Jesus. Help us in this endeavor and pursuit. Amen.